With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. the analyst inside cricket. I'm Simon Hughes and this has been quite a remarkable week in cricket with Australia suddenly beating India in just three days in the first test in Pune and doing of course what England singularly failed to do which was beat India and beat them handsomely by 300 runs. 4,502. Do you know what that is? Mm, uh, your bank balance? <laughs> Hardly. The number of days, the number of days since Australia last won a Test match in India before they won in Pune. I'm, I'm Simon Mann, and it's a remarkable. Steve Smith knew that. I mean, it's something he said at the press conference, post-match press conference. He knew exactly how many days it was since Australia had last won a Test match in India. I think they were needled, niggled. I don't know, whatever, by the fact that everyone was saying it was going to be four nil, and in a way, they had nothing to lose. Well, we'll find out exactly how they managed to pull off that heist from Sanjay Mandraker, who played for India as a batsman in the 1980s, well-known commentator and, in fact, musician. We're going to even hear a bit of his music. So he's going to tell us exactly how Australia did it. And we'll also look ahead to West Indies against England, a very inexperienced West Indies lineup, and England preparing with more one-day internationals before the Champions Trophy in the summer. Please leave a review on iTunes as well, and also subscribe to the Analyst Inside Cricket so you get the programme automatically each week. Click on the button where it says subscribe. And maybe you could send a bit of money as well, because if you're saying that your bank balance <laughs> is certainly not 4,502, it sounds like you need a few you know, contributions. Charities... Well, we're coming to the help. end of the month, Simon. There's always, a bit, there's always a bit less in there at the end of the month. <laughs> anyway, um, well, we can get on to, to money later and uh, talk about what an extreme, extreme experience it's been for cricket's richest person suddenly, Ben Stokes, who's had a bit of bit of comeuppance in the West Indies. But before that, we should just look at the, the amazing performance by Australia in India in that first test match. We were in Pune only a month ago at a one-day international. They produced a ragging turner, India, expecting to win the match comfortably and the tables were turned. It doesn't always work out like that, though. If you 
prepare a pitch where, the, where basically you bring the opposition spinners into the game. What you want, and what we saw in the England series against India, was where there was just enough for India spinners to create the doubt among England's batsmen, but not enough there for England spinners to do that to India. I, I suppose you, when Monty Panesar and Graham Swan bowled India out, say, in, in Mumbai, in when England won there on their, their last but one tour. I mean, there was so much turn. It, 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 they were right in the game. I know they were good spinners anyway, uh, Swan and Panasar, but they were right in the game. I mean, another parallel might be the test matches that England played in Bangladesh, where the ball did turn right from the start, and it did bring Bangladesh right into the game because they had a, you know, a couple of decent spinners. One thing I thought about Australia's performance is... O'Keefe and Nathan Lyon, really steady bowlers. They don't bowl much rubbish. And uh, I always felt when England were there, one of the problems was that you, you knew, you just sensed, that India sensed that a bad ball was coming along every over, almost with, with Moen Ali and, and Rashid bowling. And they bowled some good balls. Rashid took wickets, but you knew there was a bad ball or two just around the corners. It just takes the pressure off. Definitely. The other thing is, uh, as you rightly point out, that rough wickets, tricky wickets, are always going to even up the odds between teams. And actually, we used to talk about this a lot when uh, we were playing minor counties matches, when the NatWest or Gillette Cup, you know, from the 1980s, included minor counties as well, certainly in the first couple of rounds. And often you'd be drawn at the minor county, so you'd play at somewhere like High Wycombe or Chesham or... Uh, somewhere in che- Cheshire or you know, some, you know, Devon, Exmouth or somewhere like that. And you'd know the pitch was going to be pretty dodgy. In fact, we, we used to play Ireland and we'd play in Dublin and the pitch was like, I described it once as like Weetabix, you know, that was so crusty. You've got other problems with going to Dublin as well. You've got distractions <laughs> off the field yeah, as well, haven't right. you? Right. Uh, but they, that, that tends to get evened up by the fact that the Irish get as drunk as you do. So, you know, it's sort of fairly, fairly, we start off with a level playing field. But Undoubtedly, if the pitch is difficult, different from what the, the, the players are brought up on, uh, then and the ball is turning off dry patches, it means that a bad spinner can get wickets just as easily as a good one. As you point out, the the key is to be consistent. And actually, there's, there's an interesting story uh, with this particular match, Steve O'Keefe taking his 12 wickets, and the influence of an Indian on the Australian team. A man you won't have heard of, Sridharan Sriram, quite a, a mouthful, who played a little bit for Indian uh, ODI teams in the early 2000s, left-arm spinner, left-hand bat, uh, became a coach, has been all around the world, as a bit of a jobbing coach, and he's now the Australian spin consultant, and Steve O'Keefe went to him after the first session of play when he bowled fairly innocuously, and they had a talk about how he should bowl, and... Sriram gave him his own advice from his experience in India. Said, "I think you know you probably need to bowl a bit flatter and a bit more round arm." And twelve wickets later, it proved to be right because he became unplayable. And I think it did also reveal how poor India are against a turning ball. We all think that Indians are brilliant, but the best batting in the match came from Steve Smith. It was a brilliant innings in the second innings. The only, the only thing I would say about it is that. To some extent, the pressure was off. The game was decided in the first innings, wasn't it? Once Australia got that first innings lead of about 150, it's very hard to get yourself back in the game. You, you really have to bowl the opposition out then in the third innings for about 
70 yeah. or 80, yeah. something like that. Yeah. They lost 7 for 11 in that in that first innings in India, didn't they? And I mean, you know, the batting is, was, was appalling. And nobody can play spin in the world. You look at the top four bowlers in the test rankings, three of them are spinners. Ashwin, Jadeja and Harath of Sri Lanka. You know, orthodox spinners. I mean, OK, Ashwin has these carom balls and stuff, but essentially he's a fairly orthodox bowler. And certainly Jadeja and Harath are. And now we've got Steve O'Keefe as well. Nobody can play orthodox spin if you just drop it on a line and length and there's a bit of turn. Batsmen panic. And I think also there is this extra little bit of influence of the DRS and the fact that now the ball can be uh, over, the the decision can be overturned with the ball just clipping the stumps, which means the stumps are a bit wider. Batsmen are very wary of using their pad as a line of defence. It's changed batsmen's methods against spin and it's changed them for the worse because they haven't got a clue. Focus on Ashwin and Jadeja as well. You, India would expect hope that they would win the game. Well, the first innings, I mean, their figures are, are not horrendous, not by any means. Uh, between them, they bowled 60 overs. They took five for, a, what was it, about 140, which is not a bad effort at all when you're bowling against a team in, in the first innings. Australia all out for 260. Stark 61 from 63 balls, vital. because It just gave Australia that bit of impetus, but... Once they had that batting collapse, effectively the game was over. You're chasing 400, 440 in any test match. Almost anywhere in the world you've got no chance on that pitch. You, you almost might have just might as well shaken hands after, <laughs> after the third innings, really, because there's no, no way they were going to get close. It was a hell of a pitch, actually, wasn't it? I mean, some of the balls from Nathan Lyon with the new ball were bouncing virtually head high from a length. It's, it's really entertaining stuff. I think it's great for the game to see batsmen taxed in, in this way and have to fathom out a plan. And one man, above all others, has fathomed out a plan. And you wouldn't think, from looking at him, that he would be able to play spin in the, in the way that he does. But Steve Smith has, has fashioned this method of, of working the ball around, not trying to destroy the spinners necessarily, just kind of subtly using his feet, looking for the occasional boundary, but working the ball around for, for singles and, and for twos, rotating the strike up and down the wicket, going right back onto his stumps. You know, it's, it's great versatility of Smith. And, and obviously his ambition, his, his aspiration to, to keep improving and look to, to adapt his game wherever he's playing, is the most impressive thing about him. And he's going to be getting used to Pune as well, because he's the, the captain of the IPL team. Good point. Meanwhile, India obviously licking their wounds after that first test defeat. And uh, I think it's appropriate, actually, given that it's a rather sad Indian story, that we play a bit of music at this point. Little do people know that Sanjay Mandraka was not only a fine batsman for India and a very good commentator who, who really kind of gets to the, to the nub of, a, of an issue, but also he's recorded an album of Bengali tunes and he's actually got a decent voice, as you can hear from this. <laughs> I don't think he should give up his day job. I think, you know, it's a nice little sideline. Uh, I said to him, actually, should you maybe play a little lament in the, uh, in the Indian dressing room? And he said, well, maybe not. We might just keep his, keep his distance. But he has got some very good points to make, Sanjay, about how well Steve Smith played and how inadequate the Indians were. 
I saw him get a 90 the last time he was here when most Australian batsmen struggled on Indian pitches. But when he got a 90, I think may have been at Mohali. Uh, you know, you could see that he's got the feel for uh, spin and playing on these pitches. With very few foreign batsmen, when they come here, they have that kind of a touch. So he had impressed me then as well, you know, on turning pitches. And this time round, he took it to the next level. It was a bit fortunate, but he just got a nice idea, you know, of how to handle spin, the turn, the bounce, the length, and everything. It's beautiful. It's more skills than anything else, you know. A lot of hand-eye coordination, a bit of sense in the way he uses his feet and everything, but mostly just using that bat like a wand. And I've seen a lot of exceptional batsmen have that ability, and it you can achieve a little bit of it by practice, but it's it's also a gifted kind of talent. Like Mohammad Azharuddin had that feel, Sachin Tendulkar had that feel for the ball. You know, so these guys, even if they didn't get into great positions with their feet, just had that knack of hitting the ball right. You know, which is great. And what really stood out, you know, uh, Simon, for me is that I've seen a lot of, as I said, foreign batsmen batting, turning pitches. And one of the things that always gets said is that if you can't hit boundaries and, you know, score quickly, at least look for singles. Now, picking up singles on a turning pitch is far more difficult than people think. Because what you need to do is have complete control over that ball as a batsman, then put it in the gap. You know, you can take a chance with a lofted shot or four and six is sometimes easier than just putting that ball in between, say, point and acting up a single. It's a very difficult thing to do and very few batsmen are able to do it. And that was the most impressive and the, the glaring difference that I saw with English batsmen and the Australian batsmen was that every time they defended, they were looking for a run and some of the batsmen, like Renshaw and David Warner to begin with and then Steve Smith right through the inning, had this great ability to pick up singles on later on, almost at will on those uh, on that pitch. Interesting. Uh, why why was the Indian batting so bad? Do you think? Uh, well, you know, I I don't know whether you saw my tweet, but Rank Turner's Indian batting has not been impressive. So you have to go back, rewind to South Africa is the time when we saw Rank Turner's in India. Uh, before that, uh, there weren't too many ranked. There was the odd one against Australia when they were here last time. But South Africa, there were a couple of venues, uh, Nagpur and Mohali, where we had ranked turners. Slightly better than this one, but ranked turners. And Indian batting wasn't impressive. They barely got to 200 every time. And fortunately for them, they batted first and South Africa batted worse. If it was Australia, I think Australian batting would have done better on those pitches. But Indian batting also then gets a little exposed, you see. So what has happened is that this young uh, sort of Indian batting that is coming through, they pride themselves on playing pace and bounce really well, and they do. They're not as wary of pace and bounce as the early earlier generation of batsmen were. But what has happened is they're not great players of uh, spin as well on these kind of testing pitches. <laughs> Well, that's Sanjay Mandraker talking to us from India. He makes the point there that the Indian batsmen are better, he feels, against pace and spin. Is that right? I certainly don't think they're very good against spin. Um, just because I think it's you know the amount of one-day cricket they play, the big hitting now, has made them much more intent on 
getting the ball over the ropes, that dexterity, that subtleness that he talks about Mohamed Azardin, doesn't he? Uh, that they had the wristiness yeah. that they had in the past, possibly as being slightly relegated by being upright and being a bit more positive and being attacking and aggressive and, and sort of power game taking over. But if you're playing on a pitch where the ball is just spinning square and you've got DRS... Isn't that almost impossible for anybody? I think it is. It, it, it does make it much more difficult. You, if you're not sure when the ball's turning and when the ball is not, uh, you, it's very hard to line it up. And, in fact, Alistair Cook was saying, after that series in Bangladesh, that some of the hardest conditions he'd encountered was in those two test matches in Bangladesh because you just didn't know, facing the, the Bangladeshi spinners, which balls were turning and which ones uh, were not going to. And, therefore, you, it's hard to... If every ball turns and you know that every ball is going to spin, you can use the angles that spin creates to make shots, to play runs. You can sweep off the stumps because you know it's going to spin past the stumps. You can uh, maybe make a bit of room outside leg stump to allow the off-spin ball to come back towards the stumps to hit the ball against the spin on through the offside. You know, you can use the angle of spin to work balls into gaps. But if you're not sure whether it's going to turn or not then you can't use those angles with the same confidence. You get leading edges, hit on the pad when the ball didn't turn, when you're expecting it to turn. I think, you know, when you practice against spin, you're, if it's a spinning wicket, you know, you're in your mindset, you're sort of almost playing outside the line of the ball, which is spinning away, or inside the line of the ball, which is spinning back. And, and that's how you approach defending the ball. If you're not sure if it's going to turn or not, it's much harder to defend. So is it harder to play uh, on a pitch where the ball is turning square or is it harder to play on a pitch where it's seeming everywhere? You know, you know, those, you know these conditions in England in, in May, where it's overcast well, that's and a very it's, good question. it's damp. Wh- yeah. Which is harder? That's a very good question. And I, I think that obviously the seam happens quicker, but the spin happens nearer to the batsman yeah. Yeah. so you have less time to, to adjust because the ball is pitching say two yards from the batsman for a spinner and four yards for the batsman from a seamer you know the you, your reaction time is probably less even though the speed is slower 60 miles an hour to 85 say the, because it's happening closer to you you've got less time so I'd say big turn because it's happening nearer to the batsman, is harder to deal with. At least with swing and seam, you have got that bit of time, if your re- reflexes are quick, to adjust your shot. Mm-hmm. Well, only one game's been played in the series, still three to go, so there's time for India to come back. It will be interesting to see what they come up with in terms of a pitch for the for the next three games well, of the got, series. It's got to be flatter, hasn't it? And, you know, they've got to give their batsmen a bit of a chance, and uh, they didn't have any. It didn't look like they had any chance on that pitch. OK, Let's look ahead to England against uh, West Indies. Three one-day internationals coming up, starting later in the week, and we'll do that after this short break. Welcome back. England's preparations for the Champions Trophy continue this week when they begin a three-match one-day series against West Indies. It used to be a time, Simon, when you, you go to the West Indies and it would be England who would be the underdogs and the West Indies would be hugely experienced and it would be a, a massive test. But you, you feel it's very much the other way round now. England's one-day side especially is playing some good, vibrant cricket and the West Indies... Well, so many inexperienced players. They're not even in the Champions Trophy. They didn't qualify for it. So that that shows how 
how much West Indies' reputation as a, as a country has slumped. Obviously, they won the World T20 last year, and deservedly so, with a brilliant team. But only one of those players is appearing in this series, in this three-match, one-day series, because they've all disappeared off to different parts of the world, playing T20 Premier Leagues around the place, or they've fallen out of favour with the West Indies board, which itself is going through some significant changes. You know, actually, um, a new man is arriving in the West Indies this week to help run it, and that will be a name familiar to a few cricket fans in England, Johnny Grave, who was the sort of liaison officer, player liaison officer of the PCA in England. Fine man, always seen around the traps, very good at getting players along to question and answer sessions and he's in and out of commentary boxes and hospitality boxes and he's a great chap and he's now taken over as West Indies CEO. So it's going to be an interesting challenge, that. And Stuart Law is the coach as well, the Australian, former, I say former Essex player. I mean, they're doing the right thing, I think, West Indies, to shake it all up and and get some real cricket expertise in because this is what they've um, had been accused of in the past is that a lot of the the board have no real cricket knowledge at all and now they've got two people Johnny Grave who's absolutely steeped in the game and and obviously Stuart Law Uh, so you know that's a good start but it's such a chaotic organisation at the moment emphasised by the constant disagreements with their leading players who just you know take their bat and ball and go off and play in other parts of the world and as a result I just counted up the number of one day international caps that the West Indies squad have that are playing England and it's 166 and that's about 14 players that's 166 in total uh, which is less than Owen Morgan's played on his own Mm. Their last uh, one-day series was against Pakistan and the UAE. They lost that 3-0. Uh, they did play a, a tri-series in Zimbabwe, and they lost in that as well. They lost in the in the group stages. They were beaten by Zimbabwe by six runs. They also tied a game against Zimbabwe and, and lost to Sri Lanka. Although at home, they had a tri-series against Australia, South Africa last summer, our time, and they they did beat South Africa a couple of times, and they beat Australia once. I mean, they've got they have got talent. That's the thing. They've always got talent. And looking through the list, they've certainly got a couple of guys that bowl quick. I, I, I quite like Shannon Gabriel actually. I mean, he really does. He's a, he's an authentic trying to run in as fast as he can and bowl as fast as he can with his massive pair of shoulders. He reminds me a little bit of the days of Sylvester Clark in the nineteen eighties, who. You know, didn't look necessarily a, a particularly athletic sort of character, but blimey, he got the ball down quick. They're going to have some some talented batsmen. They've already shown that with a, a guy making 120 against England in a warm-up game, and uh, you know they they have this sort of still Caribbean flair about the way they play the game. Obviously, emphasised or you know really underlined by Carlos Brathwaite's astonishing performance in that T20 World Final, but he hasn't done much since. What sort of preparation is it for England? Champions Trophy coming up. Any cricket's a good preparation. I I, I suppose, I I think there'll be a lack of sophistication in the West Indies team. So, uh, you know, there won't be sort of too many crafty slower balls or clever strategies in the field or batsmen probably playing too many funky shots. It'll be all a, a bit orthodox in in the sense that the one-day game has moved on so much, you wonder whether the West Indies have, have caught up with that. But uh, any cricket is going to be good. 
just to, to play internationals in front of a big crowd, getting in scenarios where you need to score 120 off the last 10 overs or defend 100 off the last 10 overs or whatever, it's, you know, it's great. So good preparation, probably not as good as it might be if you're playing Australia or India, but still useful. Now you've been speaking to Desmond Haynes, yeah. former teammate, who I know hasn't, still hasn't forgiven you for, oh, for costing Middlesex the 1989 well, well, NatWest Trophy final. Listen to this. This is, this is me sort of trying to apologise, but he won't accept it. And you, apparently I still owe you money for the, for the spoiler on your car. Is that true? Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, when I had my Mercedes, I bought it from Germany, and I, des- I just got the spoiler kit. And then we had a final to win, and you continue to go slow ball. Now, you know, when you talk to Desmond, uh, I suppose you feel this uh, sense of uh, disappointment, if you like, um, lamenting the fact that the great players of West Indies past don't seem to be incorporated in, in the modern administration or any of the, of the modern setup. They seem to be outcasts. It seems, you know, a very, very poor arrangement that some of these great players are not brought into the fold and and just given the opportunity to pass on their wisdom, pass on their pride in the West Indies name and the whole entity of West Indies cricket. And I think, you know, that's part of why we see so many of these very good players, the Chris Gales, the Dwayne Bravos, Sunil Narayan, etc., all disappearing off to other parts of the world because they would no pride in the West Indies name. Also, as well, I think he makes the point that West Indies players are not really looked after after they've stopped playing. They're not really looked after by the West Indies cricket board as they are in other parts of the world. India, for example, um, they've got a pension scheme now for, for everybody who's played test cricket. And, and Desmond makes the point that that, that doesn't happen in, in the West Indies. He's not so qu- quite as invested in West Indies cricket as a player if you think you're not necessarily going to be looked after afterwards. But I was told that from IPL in India, uh, the India Cricket Board look after the past greats, you know. Uh, someone said I think that they get a pension for life or something like that. I, I, I don't know, but I heard something like that. And I think that that is important too, because in order for someone to be good at the sport, they must know the ones who were there before them, so that it could give them a benchmark of saying, oh, well, I would like to be like Viv or I like to be like Lara or I like to be like Sadafi Sobers or, or Sir Weishaw or something like that. But if you totally ignore the ones that were there before and there's no provision there where is that you, 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 you utilize them. Like, for instance, you know, we've got the cricket legends of Barbados here and you will think that every young team on the 15, on the 13, on the 19, on the 17, should call the Barbados cricket legends, you know, so that they could see, wow, I didn't know that we have produced so many great players from Barbados who went on to play cricket for West Indies. And I think that that could only come from the administrators, you know. If if you put something in place to say that when you get to play for Barbados in the, on the 13, on the 15 or whatever, you're supposed to tour the cricket legends museum, you're supposed to know the history about the cricket legends, and you're supposed to know the history of, of, of what Barbados have produced. But, you know, you, you've got a situation where that, you know, cricket is a game that here in the Caribbean, that some guys have played a game before even knowing the rules. Well, that was one half of 
the greatest opening partnership ever, really. Desmond Haynes and Gordon Greenwich, of course. I mean, wow, they were fantastic players. And they both, just their partnership was was so symbiotic. They could work out, if one was struggling, then the other one would take the bowling for a while. And they were very good at... at if, if, if one, say, really fancied someone, then the other one would give him the strike. And I think they scored something like 8,000 runs uh, in partnership, didn't they, together... Uh, just destroyers of bowling, but also with immaculate methods as well. Both of them had this sort of impregnable defence, but then, you know, if you just let them lose... I remember once um, Desmond actually playing in a benefit match against Northwood Cricket Club for for Middlesex, and it was somebody's benefit, John Embry's benefit or someone. And uh, normally in those situations, you reverse the batting order and the bowlers all go into open the batting against the club side. And we got to the ground and the Northwood... Cricket club opening bowler let let it be revealed that he hadn't been hit for six for about five years, <laughs> and he was rather sort of proudly saying, oh, "I'm going to get a few of you out," you know. And so we thought, "Oh yeah, this is a great opportunity." And Desmond heard this, and he'd sort of just arrived, and he was planning to sort of have a put his feet up and not really take much part in the game. He said, oh, "I'll have a bat." So he went out and opened the batting and he hit five of the first six balls from this tall opening bowler charging him down the hill out of the ground. Um, and he had the most incredible range of shots. I remember him scoring um, 200 in a match against Richard Hadley, New Zealand against Middlesex. No one else could handle Hadley at all and Haynes just sort of knocked him around as if he was batting with a, you know, a toothpick. I mean, wonderful player. His average was only 42. I'd say only 42. I mean, averages seem to be higher these days, yeah. don't they? And well, also, I suppose you knew that if you did fail, your bowlers could get you out of trouble. Well, of course, he didn't face his own bowlers. But actually, the fact is, only three players from the 1980s who played throughout the 1980s averaged over 50. And they were Viv Richards, Jarvin Miandad and Alan Border. There were a few others that averaged around that area. But if you look back at the, you know player, great players like Martin Crowe, Graham Gooch... Uh, Desmond Haynes, Gordon Greenwich, you know, mm. they averaged mid-40s. It was a much tougher era to bat, yeah, even you, even if you weren't playing the West Indies. Yeah, you look at now, you talk about some of the top players, they're all they're all pushing you know, over 50, aren't they? The, you know, the likes of Joe Root, for example, I think last time I looked, averages 52 in Test cricket. And we've just had Adam Voges retiring, who's the, the highest Test average of anyone apart from Bradman, uh, having played, you know, 20 Tests. And he, he averaged 61, didn't he? Amazing. Right, well, you're off to the Caribbean. Should yeah. we do our... Someone's, high... got, someone's got to do <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's pouring with rain outside. I'll, 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 I'll stay back here for now. Um, let's do a highlight, low light then. Uh, you, you go with the highlight this week. In a way, it's not necessarily a highlight for the player involved, but Ben Stokes last week became the richest overseas player in the IPL, getting a, a deal of over $2 million to play for Pune Super Giants. Uh, and then this week, uh, he played a warm-up match for England, one over against a 20-year-old, pretty much debutant, West Indian, and his over was not for 24. So I suppose my highlight is cricket's a great leveller. Yeah. Not as if it hasn't happened to Ben Stokes before, though, is it? <laughs> well, his two... He's phlegmatic his last, about it. His last 12 balls against the West <laughs> Indies have gone for 47. <laughs> uh, my low, low light... Well, he... It was a fantastic test match in Pune. I followed a lot of it on the, the television. But it, it was noticeable that as the, the television cameras panned around the ground, there weren't that many people in the ground, which is obviously worrying for test cricket. The one thing I would say is that 
that ground in Pune, because we were there, is a long way out of, the, out of town, which is a problem if you're trying to attract crowds. People will go there for, for one-off games, like the One Day International that, that we attended. It's also a Sunday as well. And then the other thing as well, if there's no cover for spectators, you can, you can understand why there's this drive for day-night test match cricket. It is just so much more pleasant to watch cricket in the evening in grounds where there is no shade and there's very little in Pune. It's just, it's just a much a far more pleasant experience to just watch the game where you, the sun's not roasting you. I totally agree. And, you know, there's a lot talked about the dew factor. Actually, I don't think there's that much dew around in, in a lot of these grounds. They've got ways now of, of negating it, nullifying it with ropes dragged round and, you know, blankets out and stuff every so often. And I, yeah, anyway, if there's a bit of dew, so what, really? As long as it's not saturated. So, yeah, you're absolutely right, day-night. Cricket, ping ball cricket's the way forward. Test matches, there. Okay, Simon, enjoy the Caribbean. Oh, Um, I'll try. (laughs) If you can. Uh, Please leave a review on iTunes and also subscribe to us. The Analyst Inside Cricket, so you get the programme automatically. Each week, click on the button where it says subscribe. So uh, next week, Simon will be in Antigua or Barbados or somewhere like that. I'll I'll just play a little bit of the Caribbean Sea. Thank you very much. Rolling in, if if that's all right. And I'll be in London and uh, we'll talk to you from those different venues and different climates next week. Look forward to it. Thanks for listening. Podcast Network. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash aware.